Well, good evening. Great. Uh, as you said, my name is Drew. I'm I'm a husband and father of four, and a pastor and church planter down in Houston. Um, but I did I, I grew up here in Nacogdoches, um, and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to share a few thoughts this weekend on hospitality and what it means for the mission of God through His church. Um, but but before I want to before I jump in, I want to acknowledge. Um, and offer a special thanks to a friend of mine um, in Hawaii. His name is Father Mark Bryans. Mark is a church planter in the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. And we are both graduates of the Theopolis Fellows Program. Um, so over the past year, we have been uh, very slowly writing a book together on um, hospitality for what's called the Theopolis Fundamentals Series. Um, and, and the bulk of what I'm covering this weekend has been taken from the initial draft of that book. So you don't, you don't have to buy it. Um, there you go. Uh, not that you would have. Uh, anyway, much of the content I'll be covering actually came from the mind of Mark. Um, and so I, I want to give a shout out to him. Uh, to be honest, if our book is worth reading, it's because of Mark. I'm very grateful to him. Um, All right, we're going to have four total sessions over the next two days, two tonight and two tomorrow morning. Um, This one, this first one, is probably going to be the shortest of the four. Uh, I'll just be providing some introductory comments and articulating the nature of the problem as I see it, um, for which I hope to provide a solution. Um, So after 25 to 30 minutes, we'll take a break, and then we'll jump back into session two after some cookies and coffee or whatever else you need. Um, Sound good? Great. All right. Uh, Please pray with me to begin. O Lord, we love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In the best of times and in the worst of times, you prepare a table before us. At your table, we experience divine abundance. Our cup overflows. May we learn to extend to others the welcome we have received, to give on earth as we have been given in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Any Schlotzky's fans in attendance tonight? Four. Great. Um, Okay. I'm not sure if you saw this, uh, but this past September, Schlotzky's announced a new menu item they call Naked Pizza. And as... As part of the marketing scheme for, essentially, it's the bread with nothing on top. Naked pizza. Um, as part of the marketing scheme for Naked Pizza, Schlotzky's created an account on OnlyFans, which is an online subscription-based pornography website. They promised to, quote, tempt your taste buds through exclusive content and offers. If you go to their Instagram page, you can see blurred out photos of pizza in various states of undress um, with adult content warnings cautioning visitors about the mouth-watering nature of the posts. Now, the whole thing is comically absurd, right? Um, But the question I want to ask to begin our time is this. What would inspire a sandwich shop to open a channel on a porn site. I think think we can probably all agree that our society is ill to a degree. 
But what are some of the specific underlying cultural maladies that could even give rise to something like that? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. You, you've probably heard this before. Um, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? So the the point Lewis was making was that our society's sexual appetite, unmoored from the gospel and biblical morality, is deeply unwell. And he made that point by drawing an an analogy to something he considered bizarre and unthinkable, a food tease. So Lewis intended to present a, a, a jolting hyperbole, but it turned out to be less hyperbolic and more prophetic in the case of Schlotsky's. Lewis wanted to give a creepy and ludicrous example, um, but it turns out to have hit pretty close to home. We have become a culture of food network stars and specialty cooking shows. We are, in fact, a culture that, that tunes in to see the slowly lifted cover of a silver platter, to gawk at naked meat on a plate, to lick our lips as a celebrity chef beats eggs in a bowl and then pours those eggs into a simmering pan. People post photos of their meals on Instagram and Facebook, and many many people feel more satiated from the likes that they get than from actually eating that food. Back in 2019, so this is, this is pre-pandemic, the State of the Restaurant Industry Report projected nationwide restaurant sales in excess of $800 billion, employing 15.3 million workers, which is about 10% of the U.S. workforce. So, is this an indicator that our relationship to food and hospitality in America is actually healthy? Surely, these numbers reveal that Americans love to eat together, right? I would say no. That, that same 2019 report suggested that one of the primary reasons for the, the radical growth of the food service industry in our country was, anybody want to guess? Takeout. People ordering takeout from restaurants. Back in 2009, the rise of takeout was, was driving the growth in the restaurant industry. And although the restaurant industry took a, took a hit, in the years that followed, obviously. Um, As it concerns takeout, the pandemic only added fuel to the fire. Now, my my purpose is not to condemn eating out or taking out per se. I and my family routinely participate in both of those things. Ultimately, I I think it's similar to holding a meeting on Zoom. Zoom is a wonderful technology. It has the potential to serve us well and to strengthen our relationships, but when tools like Zoom begin to reorient and redefine the nature of our relationships, we have to ask, 
whether that is in the direction of human flourishing. So I, I use Zoom and I eat takeout, but I can't allow Zoom to redefine the meaning of a true friendship. And I can't allow takeout to redefine the meaning of a true meal or, or the meaning of true feasting and hospitality. Michael Pollan puts it this way. He says, how is it that we are so eager to watch other people browning beef cubes on screen, but so much less eager to brown them ourselves? For the rise of Food Network stars has paradoxically coincided with the rise of fast food, home meal replacements, and the decline and fall of everyday home cooking. According to Pollan, the the root issue is a cultural move away from the actuality of the meal to the fetishization of a digital meal. Some of us have actually come to prefer the digital meal to the actual. So think back to that C.S. Lewis quote. Pollan says that we have moved away from the actuality of the meal to the fetishization of a digital meal. And this corresponds, right, to our sexual Studies show that young men are moving away from the actuality of sex to the fetishization of digital sex. They prefer that. And so Lewis compared the strip tease to a food tease, but in the wake of our digital revolution, what what our society is experiencing might be called food porn. We watch perfect-looking celebrities prepare perfect-looking meals and welcome their perfect-looking guests into their perfect-looking homes. And we watch them put the perfect-looking food into their perfect-looking mouths. And then, having fetishized that digital meal, we door-dash some takeout, and then we try to map that, that perfect world onto the actual world of our lived experience. It's disappointing. Again, this, this is food porn. Obviously, one of the main problems with food porn is that we exchange the glory of God's good creation for images resembling what he has given to us. But food porn is also changing the way we conceive of hospitality, the way in which we extend hospitality to one another. Just as porn breeds dissatisfaction and discontentment with the real wife the Lord has given you, So food porn breeds dissatisfaction and discontentment for our real households and kids and friends and neighbors and cooking. And so rather than truly opening our homes and practicing genuine, loving, Christian hospitality, we settle for just hosting or entertaining. Having been discipled by the Food Network, that is what we seek to imitate. So our our understanding of hospitality has no room for anything less than positive, anything messy or negative or chaotic or sacrificial. All of that has to be redacted from the account that we give on social media. Why? Well, because there's an immeasurable gap between the images of Instagrammable charcuterie boards with your, your pretty friends and the boring table, the, the, the boring food on your actual table, right? 
And there's also a gap between those perfect-looking guests and the actual people who sit around our table, like the, the messy and misbehaving children or uninvited family members or awkward neighbors or church members who stick around just a little too long after the Bible study. If there is difficulty or mess or hassle, we, we assume that we must be doing it wrong. And so we are implicitly attempting to empty true, true feasting and hospitality of their inherent uh, costliness. So, um, for Americans at least, it, it's not that we love food too much. It's not that we love feasting or hospitality too much. It's that we love those things too little. Such little love do we have for them that we are only willing to do them so long as we don't have to sacrifice to have them. Without the, the real world cost and tedium and, and labor and inconvenience and actual passion required to do it. We have the food industry and the hospitality industry, but as those industries have grown and expanded, the actual practice of feasting and hospitality has diminished. And again, these are are symptoms of a sick society. And insofar as as we Christians have settled into these ruts, these things are happening on a cultural level. Insofar as we have settled into these ruts, we have lost sight of a, a robustly biblical vision for loving our neighbors and engaging in the mission of God in this way. And so we've come now uh, to the heart of what I I really want to communicate this weekend. Um, These four lectures are together titled Hospitality and the Mission of God. What does the mission of God have to do with hospitality and feasting? Simply this. The God of the Bible, our God, is an ever-hospitable God who invites his people to a great feast. Mission exists because God is hospitable. Mission is the outward flow of his divine hospitality. Because there exists a mission of God in the world, because the God of the Bible is a God on mission, we are therefore the recipients of divine hospitality. He is the God of the garden who welcomes Adam and Eve into an edible, festal world. He's the God of the tabernacle and temple who invites his people to draw near and to feast with him. He is the God of the incarnation, Jesus Christ, who came eating and drinking with sinners. He's the God of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, who extends the offer of festal communion to the church each and every week. He's the God of the marriage supper of the Lamb, who promises a festal, festive eternity to all who follow him, who accept his invitation. And so from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, God feeds his people. God feasts with his people. From every plant yielding seed in Genesis to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation and all the water and manna and meat, and bread, and wine in between, the progress and development of God's mission can be traced in terms of hospitality and feasting, in terms of food. 
Hospitality is central to the establishment, administration, and expansion of God's kingdom. There's one thing that I want to communicate this weekend. It's that whenever a church resolves to demonstrate the joy and generosity and loving welcome of God at the table, the kingdom follows closely behind. I sincerely believe that, that, a, that a corporate return to the regular practice of biblical hospitality and festivity is precisely what our post-Christian world needs from the church. In an age of food porn, we need to be a real-life bread-breaking people. Now, I'm, I'm not going to romanticize the practice of hospitality. Um, as we will see, it's costly. It requires the laying down of our lives for others, which includes the subordination of personal comfort and autonomy to the spiritual, material, and relational needs of others. But if the life and ministry of Jesus is any indication, and of course it is, then the mission of the church is fueled by laying down one's life. Whether we're crossing an ocean or just crossing the street, to invite our neighbor over for dinner, the growth of the kingdom comes at great cost to God's church. Just as the establishment of the kingdom came at great cost to God himself. Back in 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith introduced a new category, moralistic therapeutic deism, also known as MTD, to describe a concoction of commonly held beliefs Um, among American youth. In essence, MTD described the belief that God ultimately wants us to be good, nice, and fair. Good, nice, and fair. As long as we are good, nice, and fair, God is content to remain comfortably absent, aloof, distant, until that day when he welcomes us into heaven on account of all of our goodness and niceness and fairness. But MTD was prevalent during a period of time described by Aaron Wren as the neutral world. He says that's 1994 to 2014. During those years, to be a Christian was a socially neutral thing. To each their own was the philosophy. But today we live in what Aaron Wren calls the negative world. To be a Christian is considered socially backward. Our culture in general and our cultural elites especially, tend to resist and and reject Christian norms as backward and detrimental. And this, this shift has occurred quite rapidly. And our posture in the world needs to take it into account. In the neutral world, mission was was all about was largely about relevance. Evangelical pastors infused their sermons with pop culture references. We handed over corporate singing to bands of highly skilled, trained musicians. We put bean bags and video games in the youth room. We designed our church buildings to look like shopping malls. We put coffee shops in the foyers. We could, we could feel the positive world slipping through our fingers. And so we were we were trying desperately to convince our neighbors that following Jesus could still be cool. But against this 
cult of relevance. I, I believe that Scripture and the ancient traditions of the church provide a superior methodology to any of that. We do not need new methods. We need to know the time we're in, but we don't need new methods. The ancient methods were never broken to begin with, and and they will be of immeasurable worth as we approach our post-Christian world. The problem with the pursuit of relevance is that we train ourselves to value novelty simply for the sake of novelty. The implicit assumption is that ancient things are irrelevant because they are ancient. And worse, they are an impediment, and they are an impediment to the progress of the gospel. Ironically, though, um, I think the traditional methods have the power to preserve even our relevance. In the words of Simone Weil, to be always relevant, you have to say things which are eternal. We have eternal things to say. The church has been in possession of the proper tools all along. So positive world, neutral world, negative world, it really doesn't matter all that much because we deal in things eternal, which means that our relevance is evergreen. Now, um, before we take a break, I want to lay out three problems that I hope to address throughout our time together. Wait, he hasn't been talking about problems? Things will get more positive from here on out, I promise. Uh, As is often the case, the disorders which beset our society have roots in the worship and witness of the church. When the culture is sick, we Christians should not condemn the culture unless and until we have repented for the ways in which we have contributed to the general state of unhealth. And so as it, as it concerns the relative feastlessness and inhospitality of our society, I see, I see three root problems facing the church. And I believe that reviving the practice of biblical hospitality and festivity has the potential to address each of these three problems. Number one, our concept of mission is overly abstract. What does it mean to be on mission for God? going overseas, evangelizing a co-worker, street preaching, chatting with strangers on airplanes, handing out gospel tracts. If Christians don't know what the mission is or what the mission requires, we can safely assume that they're not going to feel equipped to accomplish it. And this results in a general feeling, and, and for many, a keen awareness that we are failing at something we can't quite articulate. I believe we need a concept of Christian Christian mission that has a built-in, actionable, achievable, and scalable application, which can be faithfully pursued in the course of ordinary life, everyday life. That's hospitality. Hospitality incarnates the mission of God. He is hospitable toward us, and we are hospitable toward others. That is the mission of God to us, and that is the mission of God through us. Number two, the Christian life is disconnected from weekly worship. To what degree do you conceive of what you do in the sanctuary on Sunday morning 
as organically related to and connected to what happens in your home throughout the week? Does it really just boil down to how much money you put in the plate? Or could it be that your home life is truly meant to be an extension of everything you experience on the Lord's Day? The practice of biblical hospitality draws together these these otherwise disconnected parts in the life of a Christian, in the kingdom of God. Hospitality reshapes our thinking about worship. It opens our eyes to, to the loving welcome of a hospitable God. Every week, he opens his house to us. He forgives us and he cleans us up. He, he speaks to us and he instructs us. He feasts at the table with us. And then he sends us back to our own homes with a renewed sense of purpose. What it is that we're doing here. If worship is a result of God's hospitality, then by the time we leave the gathering of God's people on Sunday, our mission is no longer abstract. It is both clear and concrete. It is to be hospitable in the world the way that God has been hospitable toward us. To invite them, to invite the world by by means of our own hospitality to an encounter with God. All right, number three. Our gospel in America lacks an intrinsically social element. The transforming power of the gospel is not limited to the human heart. Nor is it limited to the very end of history. With the coming of the kingdom of God, the Bible envisions a new world order with political and social and cultural implications. The church is the salvation of God in the form of a community. The church is not just a good place to raise your kids. The church is not just a religious country club. It's not an extra religious layer that we lay on top of our otherwise private, secular lives. In the words of Peter Lightheart, the church is a way of living together before God, a new way of being human together. What Jesus and the apostles proclaimed was not a new ideology or new religion in our attenuated modern sense, What they proclaimed was salvation. And that meant a new human world, a new social and political reality. As we will see, in pursuing the practice of biblical hospitality, we are inviting the world into this new way to be human. When we open our homes and and share our tables, we are inviting the world into the salvation of God the leading edge of our evangelism and the leading edge of our mission is thus loving welcome and the offer of belonging. In an age of food porn, in an age in which a menu item can have its own porn channel, it's it's easy to forget that loving our neighbors means having them over for dinner. American Christians have plenty of food, and plenty of drink. But we've forgotten how to feast. Many of us experience constant overabundance, which paradoxically can can rob us of 
the meaning and the joy of a true feast. Relative to previous generations and relative to the rest of the world, most of our meals might be considered feasts. But feasting is about more than the quantity of food. I think we'll come to see that. So, should we eat less? Probably so. But that's not my point. My point is that we as a society no longer know what it means to feast. With family and friends and neighbors, with the poor and the blind and the lame, and of course with the God from whom all these blessings flow. Like sex, food must be returned to its proper place. And and once we rediscover what food and feasting are for, then we will be prepared to welcome our lost and lonely and anxious neighbors to taste, to actually taste the salvation of God.